The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Greater China shares jump as cities across the mainland continue to ease COVID restrictions, raising hope that Beijing will soon end its zero COVID policy. Russia pledges to fight a G7-imposed price cap on its oil set to come into force today, while OPEC and its allies agree to hold output steady amid weakening global demand. Wall Street posts back-to-back weekly gains for the first time since October, while November's Northern Farm payrolls report blows past expectations, despite the Fed's attempts at clamping down on inflation. And S&P Global slashing France's outlook to negative, citing rising budgetary risks as the country's debt pile grows amid ongoing support measures against inflation and spiking energy costs. Cities across China continue to take steps to ease COVID curbs over the weekend, raising hopes that Beijing will soon ditch its zero COVID policy. Authorities in Shenzhen and Shanghai removed the need for commuters to present negative PCR test results before taking public transport, following similar moves by officials in Tianjin, Chengdu and Chongqing. Mao's markets and restaurants will reopen in Urumqi from today day, while some restrictions have also been eased in Beijing. The rollback of COVID measures comes a week after unrest in cities across China. President Xi Jinping acknowledged the protests in a meeting with the EU Council President Charles Michel, according to multiple reports. Xi reportedly blamed the demonstrations on, quote, frustrated students and told Michelle that the uh, Omicron variant is less deadly than previous iterations of the virus. And very interesting, I think, this morning, Steve, the Asian markets have decided to focus on this news rather perhaps than that big payroll number on Friday. Yeah, um, we can talk about payroll in a moment, I guess. Um, The CSI 300, the broad measure there, up 1.8%. Shenzhen, seven-tenths of 1% higher. Over in Hong Kong, we see the index is up 3.4%. Shanghai Composite, 1.7% to the good, if you are long the market, that is. Uh, The dollar-yuan pairing looks like this as well. Uh, For the first time in in quite a long while as well, the dollar just giving back quite a bit of ground. And now with a six-handle, albeit... Uh, with a very high decimal, 6.95 is where we're trading versus the offshore yuan on the US currency. The Hang Seng Tech Index, uh, well, if the underlying uh, Hang Seng Index up 3.4%, you can pretty much double it and add uh, some sprinkles on top because the Tech Index is currently trading, Karen, up 7.2%. Well, Steve, China's services activity contracted for a third consecutive month in November, hitting a six-month low as the economy continues to struggle under Beijing's COVID containment measures. And just looking at that number, 46.7 was where we declined to on that occasion. Services uh, PMI from 48.4. So again, a fair amount of territory now between the 50 mark between contraction and expansion. In terms of uh, the amount of uh, the, the impact, uh, Nomura was estimating that areas in 
lockdowns that we've been watching very closely across China account for a quarter of GDP. So any changes to these COVID restrictions are clearly uh, expected to have some impact on what you are seeing on the PMIs in future. Uh, the other points here, if you look at what the banks have been doing, we saw Morgan Stanley over the weekend upgrading China's equities to overweight. We've seen a lot of action already in the Hong Kong market, but Shanghai, I think if you look at the rally, it's just very similar to what you've seen for other international markets, nothing specific around China. So the question is whether we unlock more global investment. The currency trade suggests there's a bit of action in uh, the Yuan at this point in reaction to the restrictions being slowly lifted. Would have been nice if Morgan Stanley had upgraded Chinese equities uh, about six weeks ago. Well, then out of it, can we have a look at a chart? I don't know if we've got a, a chart of uh, the Shanghai Composite. Um, Twenty-eight ninety-three is where it was trading yeah. on the thirty-first of November uh, of October. Yeah. It is now trading uh, about yeah, yeah significantly just take the one month, If we just take the one-month chart, um, I mean, just to pick up the point. I mean, it, it's 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 great that Morgan Stanley are, are getting in the game and saying that they think there's a bit more room for Chinese equities to run here. But I'm just saying it would have been nice to have had all of that gain uh, over the last uh, month of November. It's had a 10% rally is over that period you're talking about. Um, so I guess the question comes now is, are people saying China is a better investment because of the lessening of COVID restrictions? And then if we go down the, our decision tree, I think the answer mm. is yes. They're saying if the economy opens up, um, then the country becomes a buy. But it's not just because of COVID that people have trepidation about <coughs> China. They have trepidation about China because of the geopolitical situation mm. between the US and China. They have mm. trepidation because a lot of Western companies are getting closer to home now. We've seen the IRA in the US, we've seen the European response as well. A lot of business that would have previously been done in China is now going to be done closer to shore over the next few years. People have trepidation about China because of the vast and growing debt pile which China is building up, albeit not at Western standards, but my goodness me, moving very, very quickly in that direction with the overall debt to GDP of China quite stratospheric compared to where it was now. People have trepidation about China because of the extraordinary uh, problems it has in the property market and the fact that a very low growth level, level can bring with it uh, middle income trap issues uh, and indeed, dare I say it, potentially social problems as well. So I, I understand what the market's like. It's doing that same old trick of only concentrating on one issue, which at the moment is COVID. All I'm saying is the other five, six, seven factors that were always there are still there and still add investment concerns for anyone looking in. The one question mark I would have over the Chinese market at this point would be, do they unlock some sort of post-COVID mm. trend? I mean, if you think about other markets, we saw these very Did you strange... you say post-COVID? We saw these very strange What COVID part of China is post-COVID? Right? Well, no, when they get there. So, you know, we yeah. saw the rollback here. We saw very strong behaviours where people had been locked up and they wanted to go out and buy goods first. They wanted to buy services sure. second. Are we going to go back down that pathway in China now, even though they've had a reopening earlier on, gone back into restrictions? Yeah. Does it mean it prolongs those types of COVID behaviours, which could be interesting for the consumption patterns in China or not? So that would be a big question mark I would have, whether you see very skewed trade still for the next 12 months. Yeah, I think all of the above. I mean, the reality is here that there's a transition phase going on for China and no one quite knows how this is going to play out, this transition 
to accepting that you've got to live with COVID is going to be difficult just because of the efficacy of the vaccines and how high the vaccination rate is in China. And I think the, um, uh, the leaders are attempting to address that. Um, has anything actually changed apart from the Communist Party reacting to the protests? I don't think so. It just seems to me that they are trying to, uh, to appease some of the anger here because in a lot of the countries that they, a lot of the cities that are now introducing these slightly lighter measures, there's no drop in COVID numbers. In fact, we're at daily all-time highs for many of these cities. So the only reason you can see for them actually easing any of these restrictions currently is a response to the anger that was generated by the heavy-handed behaviour of the big whites, these hazmat-suited um, officials who were in, in, involved in the suppression of people's movements because they were concerned about transmission. Back to your point, I mean, I think that the market is doing exactly what the market always does with bad news, and it's trying to turn it into good news because it's insisting that the authorities are going to respect, respond with even more stimulus, even more triple R cuts, even more assistance for the um, indebted property sector. And the question is, you know, will, will that maths actually work out in the end? The valuations, I guess, have come down a lot over the last uh, 12, 18 months for all the reasons that you mentioned, Steve. It, it's a punt at this point, like so many other things at the moment, like the US markets once again on the back of what was still quite a punchy jobs number, it seems to me. A lot of people are being encouraged to go and put money to work and take on risk at the moment. Morgan Stanley talking about, is it time to get back into China? Um, and against all of this, we know the backdrop is that monetary conditions continue to tighten. Say Morgan Stanley that thinks we're going down uh, to 32.50 or whatever it was on the S&P. That's the one. So how can the two sit together? Because if you're going to go down aggressively from the current levels on one market, you can bet your bottom dollar the others are going to go down as well. We don't have China moving in isolation from the US. We don't have the S&P moving in isolation mm. from Asian markets. You're either going to get them all going down together or all going up together. I very much doubt there'll be much huge different i.e. one market is not going to rally aggressively while the other plummets i mean i i think they can go up at different rates but i think they all come down together they don't they i mean the, the, the argument rally, about the decoupling has never really borne fruit no. yeah. when you've had a, a, a recession driven by a bear market. But keep in mind we had a what 26% rally in the Hong Kong market on some of these factors in the, during the month of November versus a very small gains on the US market. So you did see that supersized rally. Uh, just one other point before you single out Morgan Stanley too much by the, their own uh, no, no, they're not know, the change. Only ones, no, yeah. it was UBS and Goldman Sachs as well. So there, there is a, a change and I think sometimes that can unlock momentum off the <clears> sidelines. Um, right? Yeah, and there's been some notable names, I think City for one, TS Lombard another, who completely and utterly got the rally wrong off the COVID lows in 2020 and, and never really recovered from that in terms of their calls. Just one more point about the markets. Nobody is um, calling a down tick in terms of putting their protection on. Have you seen the VIX? The VIX is now trading down 39% on the quarter. It is trading at 19.1. That it says to me that once again, the same old complacency, the same old refusal to buy any form of protection whatsoever, it remains as, as prevalent as ever. Look at that decline from those October levels in the VIX as well. 
nobody is taking out their protection. So have, it's good. have we just got the catalyst, though, for the Santa Claus rally? I mean, we're, we're all looking well, the, to the, the Fed and this pivot stateside. Or do we just get it out of China today? Right? Is you still absolutely get a vast amount of the gains on the market. You just have to pay a bit of insurance at the time. And it's the same old story, binary trades with no insurance. Uh, we've got to push on, but uh, just a reminder for more on China's COVID measures and the knock-on effect on factories, you can check out the website cnbc.com. I think this is a terrific story, actually. The 40% decline in factory orders tells you an awful lot about how perhaps some of the manufacturing business is being shifted to other locations. Yeah. Right. Uh, Russia says it will not sell oil to countries which adopt a price cap, with the Deputy Prime Minister Alexander Novak saying Moscow is ready to cut production if necessary. Uh, the $60 per barrel cap proposed by G7 countries, Australia and the EU, comes into effect today. Uh, Urals crude for delivery to Northwest Europe currently trades just under that level, 58.84. The Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky said the cap isn't enough to deter Russia's invasion and that it's only a matter of time before stronger action is needed. Meanwhile, OPEC Plus says it is ready to meet at any time and take immediate measures to support global oil markets after deciding to hold production steady in a brief online meeting on Sunday. The move locks in the two million barrel per day cut, which riled the White House in October. The group's Joint Ministerial Monitoring Committee will meet uh, next in February. Herman Wang is uh, Managing Editor at S&P Commodity Insights. Herman, very good to see you. Always a pleasure. And of course, we spent a lot of time following this grouping over the years as well. The quote is, they will take immediate action uh, to stabilise global oil markets if necessary. Yep. There's nothing unstable about global oil markets at the moment. They are behaving glacially. They are behaving beautifully. It's just they don't like the price level. So why don't we just cut the nonsense from our dear friends at OPIC Plus? And I do think a lot of them are incredibly smart people. But let's just get to the chase. This isn't about stabilizing oil markets. This is about keeping the price up. Well, yeah, I mean, right now, I think what you, you've seen from OPEC Plus, they like to say that they're proactive, right? They, you saw them in October. They came out with that two million barrel per day cut to try and get ahead of what they saw was a recession ahead, weak Chinese demand. Uh, the conditions are still there, right? That the same, you know, the same uncertainties that we saw back in October are still there. This time, though, I guess uh, they wanted to avoid maybe some of that geopolitical fight with the U.S. Uh, that we saw after that October meeting. Uh, you talked about that earlier. Uh, and uh, well, really, what we're seeing is that the market is just so hazy right now. And uh, there's a lot that's just kind of out of their control. The situation in China that you guys have been talking about. Mm. Uh, the COVID restrictions have been in place for, for a long time. Now they're starting to be lifted. Is this a sort of a false dawn for Chinese uh, demand, oil demand, uh, the second largest consumer in the world of oil? Uh, that's too early to tell, you know, whether, whether these policies that are being lifted, is that just to, like, okay. like you know, to appease the, these uh, protesters, or is it going to be an actual fundamental shift in policy so in China? The Hang Seng Tech Index is up over 7% today on the yeah. back of COVID and, uh, yeah. uh, easing in China. Yeah. The Brent crude market is mm. 0.3 of 1% higher as we speak as yeah, well. Yeah. That is not the bang for the buck no. that um, the Saudis and other producers would have liked from an unlocking of COVID. Is it just that the likes of Goldman's, the likes of JP Morgan, the likes of the vast number of the hedge fund community, They've just completely misread the market. Well, you know, I, I was talking with a lot of delegates uh, um, during the meeting and, and before the meeting, as, as we do when we cover OPEC. And uh, I was asking them about this. You know, China has just announced 
this uh, reopening of some of uh, these lockdown restrictions uh, in some key cities. Is this going to influence your decision, influence your talks? And, and the feedback I got from them was like, it's still too early to tell, right? It's too, uh, it's too unclear at this point, as it is with the impact of the G7 price cap and these EU sanctions on Russia. And I think that's kind of what you're seeing with the Brent price reaction, if I had to guess the, uh, what, the, what the trader mentality is. Uh, we just don't know what's going to happen with the enforcement of these EU sanctions, the enforcement of the price cap. Um, you've heard Russia say that they're not going to comply with it. They've been uh, accumulating this shadow uh, tanker fleet to try and get around this, uh, these sanctions and th this price cap. How much will China and India be able to absorb of this, these uh, flows that have been going to Europe? Um, you know, maybe only half of what's been going to Europe. So, uh, so jump yeah. in about this shadow fleet. Mm. So, uh, I, we, we've got time here, haven't we? Uh, mm. It's kind of a bit over. There's always been a fleet of vehicles out there on the seas that are for hire that don't abide by Western insurance sure. rules. Yeah. They, they, we, we know this as well. Yeah. So it's always been a bit of the Wild West. They haven't just suddenly purchased 100 boats, have they? No, but we are seeing some um, transactions that are happening, uh, you know, uh, in this in this okay. shadow industry. And, and they're, they're building this fleet. As you say, it's a lot of older tankers. Um, less regulated uh, uh, regimes that are, that are controlling these tankers, higher maritime risks for these shipments. And, and so uh, we're, we're kind of seeing that in the, in the shipping uh, market right now, okay. uh, the insurance market for this. So, so how, this, how, this, how this procurement and how the whole t transaction, how the, how the whole pipeline of these uh, ships going to uh, uh, take these flows from Europe to other places, um, you know, okay. we'll have to see how that works out. We haven't we seen a playbook for this anyway? I mean, the steel, the aluminium industry, it's been subject to sanctions for many mm. years, and we clearly see it supports some industries in some countries over others. Isn't there a playbook out there that could be one that's significant for the oil market? Yeah, I mean, we've already seen some flows already. Uh, shift out of Europe, you know, when, when these sanctions, uh, well, when, when Russia invaded Ukraine back in February, uh, we've already seen a lot of these dislocations and flows. We're seeing higher flows from the U.S. going to Europe uh, and some of the flows, uh, you know, a lot of talk about India taking more Russian crude. You know, I just think it's, it's a matter of uh, w will these trends continue? How much more can th these countries absorb? China lifting these restrictions could be a pressure valve release for these uh, Russian crude flows that have been going to Europe. You know, our analysts say about, you know, maybe 500, 600,000 barrels per day of Russian crude flows to Europe uh, are at risk from these sanctions and, and need to find a new home. And so, uh, you know, China could be one place for them. But uh, as we've seen, uh, you know, with these COVID restrictions, uh, demand has been down in China quite a bit. So it yeah. does feel as though there could be very wild card scenarios, depending on whether the price goes up by a long way, or whether it does stay around where we are or even falls. And if you think about the macro here, the U.S. picture is quite important. And we just saw a payrolls report what 260 odd thousand uh, workers, uh, yeah. new positions created. This is well and truly more than what the Fed is aiming for. The hundred thousand that Jay Powell spells out. If we get back to that level next year and we get much slower growth out of the United States, what does that mean for the oil market more broadly? Well, the, the is, I think why you're seeing quite a divergence in, in a lot of the forecasters and, and I really don't envy the people who have to forecast oil prices these days because you have so many conflicting uh, economic indicators out there, right? I mean, uh, our analysts at S&P Global Commodity Insights, I mean, I think we're seeing uh, still an oversupply for the first quarter of, uh, of 2023. Um, I think there's uh, a, a sentiment that maybe some of these uh, sanctions, uh, there's going to be some workarounds there. Um, you have seen other forecasts. I saw UBS came out with a note on yesterday that they still see oil prices above $100, $100, $100 a barrel uh, coming up. Uh, and so 
you know, it's just really what's going to happen with these sanctions? What's going to happen with inflation? If China opens up, you know, China's just like coiled spring of demand out there, right, that, that uh, we could see. And, uh, you know, just, just so many questions. And, and you know, to, that I guess, you know, to defend OPEC Plus and their decision, you know, yesterday, uh, that's, that's, you know, that's what they're looking at. There's, there's so much that's out of their control right now. Just stand pat right now. See where, where the dust settles. And, uh, you know, there's a monitoring me- committee meeting going to happen back in February, happen up in February. Um, they'll, they'll take stock of the market then and uh, see what they need to do. So, so let's just be very clear, Herman. Um, what is going to be the impact of the oil price cap? Will there be mm-hmm. any impact at all? Well, as it is right now, $60 per barrel, right? We're, we're assessing uh, euros crude in the low to mid 50s right now. So the price cap is above what the euros uh, price is right now. So uh, there could be not that much impact in terms of flows. Now, the G7 says they're going to keep reviewing these prices uh, on a regular basis and, and how, you know, I, the devil's in the details, right? And it's how they implement this. And, and that's the big question in the market. G7, the G7 took a long time to try and come up with this idea and to get all the parties on board uh, to sign off on it. And so that's why there's been so much uncertainty in the market about how, how, what the willpower is to enforce this. Do we know how much uh, relabeled oil is coming back into the mm-hmm. EU from India or from China at this yeah, point? I that, mean, our understanding yeah. is what we're seeing. That they're paying something like $33. That, that's the report, right? The, discount. Yeah, right. Discount for right. $33. Yeah. So significantly below market price. But are they making a turn here because they're just relabeling? That, that then, is a big question. I mean, that, that, you know, we see that a lot in the refined products market. And those, that EU ban on the refined product shipments goes into effect in February. Um, but yeah, we are seeing, uh, as you say, India, we're seeing some other countries uh, around the Middle East take that Russian crude oil, refine it, and then maybe some fuel oil coming into Europe. And, and that's, the, that's the trade that's happening there. Um, again, it's all about enforcement and how, how, how much uh, it's, it's quite difficult to, to uh, there's no uh, country of origin label that goes on with, uh, you know, refined product uh, cargoes. And so it can be a bit hard to track, but uh, uh, certainly it's out there and uh, certainly something that I think regulators will, will be looking at. Wow. Uh, it's such a complicated story at the moment, isn't yeah. it? Just uh, keeping an eye on these things. Um, Herman, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for coming in and Thank seeing you. us. Herman Wang, the managing editor for S&P Commodity Insights. Um, coming up on the program, we haven't really got round to having a good old chat, have we, about the November non-farm payroll report. So we'll rectify that. The number coming in hot, you had a whole slew of people suddenly out there talking about how it would be a mistake for the Fed to hike 50 basis points in December. They need to go another 75. But we'll uh, have that conversation when we come back and we'll talk about what's necessary at this December meeting. And for more on the fallout from the G7 price cap on Russian crude, you can check out the Squawkbox podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts.
The US economy posted another strong month of jobs growth. The employers filled 263,000 positions in November, a bigger gain than the 200,000 jobs forecast by economists, but still below October's level. Average hourly earnings also came in above expectations, jumping 0.6% compared with the prior month, while the unemployment rate held steady at 3.7%. The strong labour picture will add to pressure on the Fed to keep raising interest rates, a policy that Wharton Business School professor Jeremy Siegel says is misguided. This idea that, you know, the worker trying to catch up because he's lost so much purchasing power is something that the Fed has to crush, to me, is extraordinarily bad Fed policy. And I don't think it's inflationary because it's inflationary when wages jump ahead of prices, not when they lag behind prices. Powerful comments there, right, on uh, catching up to the price pressures. But in terms of what we're seeing on the wages side, that was hotter than anticipated. The 0.6% versus a 0.3% of a percent anticipated. So uh, the question is what the Fed does with that. We know we're shaping up, what, 50 basis points this month in terms of the next interest rate hike. But the question is just how much more comes after that and whether we get to a 5% plus handle on the terminal level on interest rates as a result. So we don't have CPI this week. We have CPI next week. We have PPI this week and we have a whole host of other very important data. The PPI incidentally comes on Friday along with the Michigan sentiment data. But the fact of the matter is, there is something happening. It's just a question of how glacial the pace is at the moment. And the Fed can't afford glacial in terms of reaction on inflation, reaction on employment, reaction on wages as well. And, and they would like to see it moving more aggressively so they can say, right, job is done. Because as we all know, it takes a long time. There is a very big lag effect, but we don't know how long the lag effect is and we don't know what damage is being done by pushing too far. Some people think they do know, so people like Cathy Wood who just happen to be investing in growth stocks that really are very aggressively reacting. So most of us don't know what the reaction is. But one thing is true is that the fact is it is hurting uh, consumer budgets and it's hurting household um, income and household savings level. If I told you that the savings level uh, has declined sharply, the savings rate, uh, to only 2.3% in October, now this is the second lowest on record. Now bear in mind the savings rate in 2019 was 8.8%. You can see how dramatically that's declined. So something definitely is happening to the ability of families and American consumers to save. It's just a question is whether it's going to come quick enough for the market to hold its nerve and not to have that retracement, which we um, referred to earlier on. Um, I think it's interesting how the analyst community have, have basically um, headed off in different directions on this. And I think you, you, you kind of allude to that there. The, the dispersion in views at the moment is quite extraordinary. And Jeremy Siegel, I love Jeremy Siegel. I listen a lot to the podcast. And he has consistently argued that the now data on housing shows that the US economy is doing a whole lot worse than Powell and the cohort at the Fed believe at this stage. The, the problem is, you know, there are plenty of other economists that disagree with him. Uh, Paul Krugman um, didn't, didn't really like the number. He thought it was evidence that the Fed should be going harder here. Um, uh, Larry Summers, we have a way to go until the Fed is done. That was his opinion. David Rosenberg, though, well-respected equity analyst in the United States, pointing out that he thought if you looked at the birth debt uh, birth death model, adding 110,000 jobs, net out this shrinking workforce, real NFP number was basically negative 227 
thousand, which is what he was tweeting out over the weekend, basically aligned with a recession message from the household survey. So the question is, who do you choose to listen to at this point? Who do you think has got their finger closer to the pulse on what is really going on in the US economy at this stage? Because the normative economic view at this stage is the Fed is going to have to continue to go hard until we get somewhere around 5% on um, policy rates. So a couple of points here. You may recall pre-COVID we were sitting around the set and one of the big conversation points is we need to have less disparity in wages. We can't just have the big end of talent having all these salary increases, CEOs paying themselves some enormous amount of bonuses, but the low end just not participating in this expansion of income and bonuses. What are we seeing now? We're seeing higher incomes at the lower end increases that are being demanded by a series of union engagements with work with the employers and we are seeing genuine change now because the worker does have more ammunition but unfortunately the other side of this is we do get inflation with it because some of that money is being spent into the economy so it is forcing up prices that we're seeing across the board so it does sort of big question mark over this experiment. What do we do from here? Where does this story go? And do we still continue to see wage um, increases encouraged at the low end if we go into recession, we go into tougher times? Or is that exactly where the hit comes? You know, the Fed tackles, as we were talking about with with, um, Siegel there in that clip, it tackles inflation, but that also tackles the wage story. And there go all those increases we've seen in in the last couple of years. This is where behavioural economics hits classical economic theory, isn't it? Because behavioural economics, I think, is you go talk to someone who runs a cafe or they run a restaurant or they run a pub in this country and you say to them how how easy are you finding it to hire people and they'll say well not very easy at all well what about the people you've got Uh, are are they going to leave yeah I'm worried about that so I'm looking after them I'm paying them a little bit more I am hoarding labor effectively and I think that's what's going on in the state and I think that um, bosses will try to hang on to their workers for as long as they can before perhaps accepting the inevitable if we are actually going into recession. So the reality is we we could continue along this road for a little bit longer here and have a few more months where the labour reports look strong just because companies have struggled post-COVID to keep workers and hire more workers. So I wonder if this is actually, you know, the the bosses and the companies continue to take the pain for a while longer here even as their top line slows down hanging on to their workers because it's been such hard work getting the workers to come back um just two points very briefly one i i I wished you were right karen but it's not the case the the average worker salary is still a speck of dust compared to the average ceo salary and we're still at the biggest multiple we've seen in the last 20 years somewhere in the region of 324 times so I, I really wish you were right. I, I, I hope before the end of my career it will be right, but I doubt it will change. I think it will just stay elevated and get worse as well. But the evidence is that the median salary is barely moving compared with the CEO salaries, which are still going through the roof. The second point, and you said the question is, well, I think there's a second at the question, and that is the market reaction to what we're seeing as well. What does the market want? And again, it's a question that you and I and Jeff have been asking for ever. The market wants a recession. The market wants inflation off. The market wants unemployment. And there's something very perverse about that, but that's what it wants to see at the moment. It wants to see bad payrolls figures. We saw that from the evidence of Friday yet again. It wants to see median salaries not going up. 
because um, that's obviously a marker of inflation. And it wants to see a form of recession, but it only wants a little recession. It wants a Goldilocks recession as well, so that those earnings estimates don't have to come down too much. Yeah, the, you know the word glacial that you used a moment ago. I think unfortunately that's a very negative scenario, a negative negative word for the Nasdaq because glacial means that rates stay higher for longer and you can see tech stocks yeah. are still just reeling from that prospect. I think some of the young people who've never seen a cycle need to know that we are never going to see those rates again. In our, I was talking to a couple of people over the weekend about this, both in the market. Nobody, nobody I know who's been around for longer than one cycle thinks we'll ever in our lifetimes and I'm talking about, let's say, people in their 40s upwards, mm. will ever see those kind of rates again. So no more ZERP, dead and buried? Yeah, I think so. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.